I'm Rick Herman, the director of the Mershon Center, and I'm happy to welcome all of you here this afternoon to this panel sponsored by the Mershon Center and the Aquatic Center, a panel that's going to focus on human trafficking, which is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world based on the recruitment, harboring, and transportation of people solely for the purposes of their exploitation. The panel today, called Trafficking in Civil Society, Denial, Distress, and Danger, is bringing together an interdisciplinary panel of experts who work on this, and they're going to discuss what the realities of trafficking and how non-governmental as well as governmental networks and organizations as well as civil society can effectively work together to address and combat the trafficking issue. I'll introduce the panelists now, and I'll introduce all four of them, and then I'll sort of be a stop keeper or a clock keeper. But first to speak will be Ambassador Mark P. Langdon, who is the Executive Director and the CEO of the Polaris Project. It's a leading anti-human trafficking non-profit organization, and he oversees all national programs, including the U.S. Policy Program and the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, which operates the Department of Health and Human Services National Anti-Human Trafficking Hotline. And before joining the Polaris Project, he served as Ambassador at Large and Director of the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons in his capacity at the State Department. He was Chair of the Senior Policy Operating Group coordinating U.S. agencies' domestic and global anti-trafficking policy. Next to Ambassador Langdon is Jana Hashimova, who is a Professor and Director of the Slavic Center. She's a specialist on East European languages and literatures and is striving to establish the links between political ideology, critical psychoanalysis, and cinema. And her most recent work explores film representations of trafficking in women. And today her presentation will focus on screening trafficking, prudent or perilous. Marguerite Hernandez, who is at the far end, I guess we're a little out of order here, is a graduate student in the Department of Sociology. She was awarded a Mershon Center student grant to conduct research for her dissertation, which will provide one of the first empirical views on the relations between organizations and agencies combating human trafficking. And today she's going to speak about the challenges to combating human trafficking in the U.S. NGO response. And last but surely not least is Kristen Silver, is an undergraduate psychology and national studies major with a minor in neuroscience. And she's completed her honors thesis on what Americans know about human trafficking and the empathy they feel for trafficking victims. And she's been accepted as an intern at La Strada Animus Association in Bulgaria, uh, where she hopes to continue her research after graduation. And her presentation will be called Fighting Human Trafficking, the Role of Empirical Research in Citizen Activism. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the podium over to Ambassador Langdon. Welcome. Well, thank you for coming and your interest. Uh, it's a great um, panel uh, representing um, different perspectives and hopefully a common uh, commitment to fighting human trafficking. Um, Professor Herman, thank you uh, for the introduction, and I want to thank the, uh, the various people who work together um, to, to put this event uh, forward, the Mershon Center for International uh, Security Studies, the, the Center for Slavic and Eastern European Studies, and I want to thank my colleagues at the uh, Columbus Council on World Affairs for helping uh, make this possible. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing from um, all, all three.
three of you. I wanted to start by first having a word about what human trafficking is. I don't think we should dig into a discussion of the role of civil society fighting human trafficking without stopping for a moment and looking what it is. It's often misunderstood. It is an expression, a jargon term that leads people to focus on the crossing of international borders, which is important, but not always a critical element of human trafficking. Sometimes it's conflated with smuggling people across borders, which leads to unfortunate normative views of migrants. The critical elements of human trafficking are the exploitation that it brings you towards. Thank you. If you look at both the principal UN treaty that deals with human trafficking, the Palermo Protocol, or the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in the United States, you see a similar pattern. It's not surprising because they were crafted roughly around the same time. The definition of mouthful from the Palermo Protocol is that trafficking is the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons by means of threat or use of force, or other forms of coercion, of abduction, fraud, of deception, of the abuse of power, or of a position of vulnerability, or of the giving or receiving of payments or benefits to achieve the consent of a person, having control over another person, purpose of exploitation. It goes on to define the exploitation can be either for sexual dimensions or forced labor. Similarly, in U.S. law, there are three elements for human trafficking, an action, a means, and a purpose. So the action is recruiting, or harboring, or transporting, or providing or obtaining someone, a person, for the purpose of using force or fraud or coercion. And the goal is one form of exploitation, either sexual exploitation or labor exploitation. The crucial part here is the goal is exploitation. It may involve crossing borders, harboring, transporting, but it may not. And importantly, it sometimes doesn't involve brute force. Sometimes the person isn't under lock and key. Sometimes the person isn't principally subject to brute violence, although they often are. I should just say, adding to the little profile that Professor Herman gave, I come to this forum as a political scientist as well as someone who has worked in the policy world and deeply interested in how civil society is involved in the policy process and the value added by civil society groups, more nimble oftentimes than government entities. And I think that we need to understand, since I'm lucky enough to go first, at a broad philosophical level, how fighting human trafficking is fundamentally an issue of the health of democracy, the health of democracy and the health of pluralism in countries, in polities. In fact, one has to ask the question, can a democracy be fully realized if there is slavery existing in that country? Because it's best to understand this jargon term of human trafficking as a means of exploitation. 
trafficking by, do you need my help on something? No, sorry, I'm trying to get that right to work for you. Right. I can project. <laughs> Blisters on my fingers. <laughs> it's really bad. Like, I think that if you swing closer to it, more better. Okay. You can push back on. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, how can a democracy be fully realized if slavery still exists in a, a country that is labeled democratic? Um, best understand human trafficking as a modern-day form of slavery, typically not involving chains, but effectively robbing freedom and uh, autonomy from someone. In a place like India, where one sees millions of people in bonded labor just because they belong in disadvantaged castes, or in the United States even, still today, long after the emancipation of the slaves, uh, the 13th Amendment, uh, assiduous efforts in the 1960s um, to deal with um, the needs of civil rights. There is a, a new kind of slavery um, that one even sees uh, in the U.S. We need rule of law. Uh, fighting human trafficking crucially involves uh, around the developing world, uh, and oftentimes even in uh, advanced industrial countries, fighting corruption. It is the impunity of the trafficker, the uh, non-punishment of someone who is making profit off, off on the backs of someone enslaved um, that is a fundamental um, omission of justice. Um, so one might say it's a basic question of democracy um, if, uh, to make sure that no one is above the law, that no one can treat another human being, typically someone from a, a, a group that's not favored, a child, a woman, a minority, a migrant, someone in a lower caste, um, as not um, someone to victimize. And indeed, that's the other democracy question, that while no one who's a perpetrator should be allowed to be a, um, above the law, so too one might put it that no one should be... No one should be beneath the law. No one should be seen as beneath. Should we stick with the, the perfect being the enemy of the good? Sorry about that. Thanks. Um, no one should be seen as being beneath the law. Those children, women, minorities, migrants lower uh, and disadvantaged caste members shouldn't be seen um, as having uh, less access to rights. That's a fundamental question of democracy. Where does civil society come into this picture? Civil society is a crucial dimension to any uh, healthy democracy, to pluralism. And I'd emphasize that not only should there be a voice of society uh, in the form of the consent of the governed, but there needs to be um, an, an active ability for societal groups, for civil society groups, for what we call non-government organizations, to play a part in grappling with public policy issues. And a picture emerges when you look at the human trafficking field 
of NGOs as not carping critics of governments, but nimble partners, assets, assets to legislators, assets to appropriators, assets to law enforcement. Um, so what I wanted to look at from the two places I've had uh, the luck of sitting in the last three years. One, as the U.S. ambassador to combat human trafficking and someone who had make some decisions about non-government organizations that the U.S. would fund with foreign assistance to help them do their job abroad. And now the CEO of um, a leading catalyst NGO within the United States um, working to um, be a good example in the United States and Japan in richer countries so that if we would hope that those in uh, lower capacity uh, developing countries in terms of economic resources, um, we hope that they would do good, that we would be an example and not hypocrites. So I see four major roles uh, in combating human trafficking to be found from civil society, or more accurately, non-government organizations. And I'd like to talk about some examples that I've seen of these four different um, roles of non-government organizations within the United States, um, within advanced industrial democracies other than the United States, and in developing countries, typically um, democratic developing countries. I will admit uh, from the start that you'll note a few of the examples that I'll cite from the very organization that I um, uh, am executive director of. So, uh, you know, truth in packaging, uh, some examples close to home will be the ones that I, that I share. So first, a major role for human trafficking um, engaged NGOs is victim identification. The victims of human trafficking are afraid to come forward. As uh, people involved in the field technically put it, they don't self-identify. Uh, they're afraid to come forward because of retribution from their exploiter. They're afraid to be treated by law enforcement or by society as disposable or criminals or illegal aliens in the United States, or as it's called in Europe and elsewhere, irregular migrants. They're afraid they might be jailed or deported, blamed as a victim. So NGOs play a crucial role in finding the victims. And oftentimes, as we'll move into shortly, law enforcement find them useful partners because they are able to spot those victims and are sometimes, crudely put, less scary than law enforcement or immigration officials. Polaris Project runs an office in northern New Jersey. Uh, it goes and uh, looks in um, sex industry venues from the um, strip clubs that are uh, portrayed in The Sopranos uh, fictionally um, to uh, Latina residential brothels, um, Asian massage parlors, um, escort services to help find the victims of human trafficking. And moreover, our office in New Jersey um, has been engaged in um, looking into farms where there are migrant workers in New Jersey. Um, another organization that's quite interesting is um, Stand Against Global Exploitation, or SAGE, based in uh, San Francisco. They've been engaged in outreach into the community of prostituted women and girls to look for sex trafficking victims that have recently become a grantee to search for uh, U.S. citizen minors who, under the law, are human trafficking victims. If you look at other advanced industrial countries, you see other civil society actors. 
Um, I wanted to touch on some examples of faith-based organizations. One that I would cite would be the activity of um, Catholic nuns um, in Italy to find sex trafficking victims. Uh, Sister Eugenia Bonetti um, is a leading uh, nun who in fact trains other nuns uh, from around the world, but goes out and tries to seek um, women who are um, sex trafficking victims uh, in that victim identification um, cause. Now, what examples um, could I think of from the developing world of this victim identification role? One really interesting case I was exposed to was a project funded by an arm of the AFL-CIO, the Solidarity Center. Um, They funded a faith-based coalition in Kenya to go look for human trafficking victims, particularly among domestic servants, mobilizing uh, Muslim organizations locally in Kenya. Oftentimes people think, hmm, Faith-based organizations involved in human trafficking must all be Christian. Not true. Civil society organizations also importantly can play, and I've already kind of um, previewed this, a partner role with law enforcement. So, for instance, Blair's Project's Washington uh, office um, has a a satellite team uh, working on... uh, helping survivors of human trafficking, and one distinctive thing that it offers is rapid response late at night if uh, ICE, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, or uh, police, Metropolitan Police, call and say, we'd like to have you as experts on human trafficking come, talk with potential um, human trafficking victims, figure out if they are human trafficking victims, and um, (coughs) help see whether they would like to testify or how we get them into social services. Our partners, the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation in Illinois, are working very closely with the Sheriff's Office in Cook County to try and um, hold Johns to account and not punish prostituted women um, to somehow reverse the stigma uh, involved in the sex trade um, so that the demand-creating sex trafficking is winnowed and some people might turn out to be sex trafficking victims are not, in fact, punished. Our own small office of Polaris in Tokyo, Japan, works quite closely with the authorities. I was quite struck when I accompanied our 29-year-old office director in Tokyo to the National Police Authority in what one must call a chauvinist culture, and all the more chauvinist in, uh, in government circles, at how this young woman was seen as a true asset um, by the men of the National Police Authority. And that's an inspiring thing to see. If you look at um, the developing world, I'd like to share an example in India uh, that I really admire, an organization called Bachpan Bachan Andalan. It's led by a child labor activist, um, Kailash Satyarthi. Um, it's involved in working with the police to go find those child labor sites where the most onerous forms, the worst forms of child labor are happening, and engage in raids, and raids that have a sensitivity to them, that are looking for the place that those children are going to go after the work site is raided. Now, 
NGOs play a crucial role around the world pushing the government to do more. Um, the, uh, an example in the United States is the very reason I'm here for Polaris Project, working with partners in Ohio to get stronger laws uh, to fight human trafficking here because the federal law is not enough. Um, partners of ours in the Anti-Human Trafficking Coalition um, uh, in LA, the organization CAST, a coalition against uh, slavery and trafficking, are also heavily involved pushing for federal appropriations. So there's more money uh, from the Department of Justice for victims of human trafficking. We've worked very closely with them. I know Kristen would be happy to hear me say this. An example that I'd cite from another advanced industrial democracy is La Strada, um, particularly in Poland. Uh, our, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Poland really wanted to emphasize La Strada as an exemplar of an organization urging a decent government to do more um, to fight human trafficking. In the developing world, I'd, I'd like to cite an example um, that really impressed me in Thailand. An organization called the Labor Rights Promotion Network in Samut Sakhan, which is on the outskirts of Bangkok, right in the middle of the seafood processing uh, industry. Folks, there are seats. Come on down. Uh, we will not be put off by you making your souls comfortable. Um, the Labor Rights Promotion Network, or LPN, if you want to look it up on the web, were crucial in finding people who had been recruited from Burma, fleeing from political repression and economic chaos, looking for better work, and who ended up in a pure, extremely violent um, forced labor situation in a couple of camps in the seafood processing area. It was LPN that pushed the government to do more. The government didn't have an LPN um, kicking it in the pants, technical expression, um, uh, wouldn't have um, success. Fourth, an important role of uh, nonprofits, non-government organizations, or as galvanizers of the public. And that's helpful in getting governments to do more to mobilize public opinion. The Polaris Project is working on a grant from the Novo Foundation to show the harm of sex trafficking to the public in hopes of mobilizing more public support to fight human trafficking. Right here in Ohio, there are two different rescue and restore coalitions designed to make the public more sensitive and knowledgeable about human trafficking. They're based respectively in Cincinnati and Columbus, and they involve collaboration between organizations, uh, between NGOs. Um, in other advanced industrial democracies, um, I would cite in South Korea, um, my sister's house, a shelter which um, mobilizes the public to push the government to see women who are sex trafficking victims as victims rather than as dirty and disposable. Galvanizing the public, one sees also in um, other democracies um, around the world, like Mexico. Lydia Cacho uh, is a journalist in Mexico who runs a shelter for sex trafficking victims in Cancun, particularly about um, child uh, sex trafficking victims. But Lydia Cancho challenged authorities by writing about the corruption, um, the cozy relationship of senior government officials with uh, human traffickers as organized crime figures, mobilizing public support. So look, to achieve all of these four goals, victim identification, partnering with law enforcement, pushing governments to do more, and galvanizing the public, 
one last essential role um, of NGOs is to work together. They not only have to work with government and mobilize um, the public, but work together. Um, Polaris Project is very involved in an alliance called the Alliance to End Slavery and Trafficking with organizations like CAST, and also the um, uh, National Human Trafficking Resource Center, the hotline that we run, um, essentially represents uh, a coalition in some respects because we have a map of all the non-government organizations in the field. So when someone calls and wants help for a victim or wants to be trained or wants information, we make referrals to other people in the world of human trafficking. It's not about us, it's about the movement. In Japan, this is something we're very committed to. I saw when I was ambassador uh, to combat human trafficking when I went to uh, Japan um, in the summer of 2007, a rather anemic NGO community um, working on human trafficking issues. I returned to Japan now with Polaris Project and went on purpose when the UN Rapporteur on Human Trafficking investigating the record of Japan um, for the UN and the world community was there. And I saw that there's much more continuity of that NGO community. Um, I hope Polaris Project is one of those uh, coalition members contributed to that. Um, that's important. And in the developing world, I just cite an example that's fostered to some extent by funding from the U.S. Agency for International Development, but a group of NGOs in, in Cambodia who are working together to try and develop um, effective shelters. Uh, noteworthy and um, celebrity figure um, is Somali Mom in that effort, but the coalition effort of best practices being developed and unity is essential. Here are some lessons and examples that I would share from jail work on human trafficking. on the mic, but I was told we need it, so we have to stick to it. Hello? <laughs> I would like, like uh, the ambassador to thank the organizers, and although I'm one of them, but still... <laughs> I would like to thank, thank the Mission Center. Uh, this is really an important forum, and um, the rest of the panelists today for uh, what I uh, think is going to be an interesting and helpful discussion and presentation. I'm going to talk about something different here, and especially how society and NGOs use media and film in their anti-trafficking uh, campaigns, and I'm going to um, analyze this usage and try to provide a slightly critical angle for a more thoughtful selection uh, of those materials because I think it is important when all good intentions actually result in, in, in good efforts rather than have ambiguous 
results at the end. I uh, started and became engaged in with trafficking a few years back, organized some conferences here um, at the Ohio State Universities and worked actually with three NGOs extensively in the last five years in southeastern Europe and you have them there in Macedonia, Bulgaria and, and Turkey and all of them to a certain extent use video materials and feature films and documentaries in their prevention campaigns. So I'm going to talk about um, their usage and we'll focus on one particular example. My project is a larger a monograph length uh, project but I'll focus here on something very small to illustrate my point. The matter of uh, people's activism, social participation, recognition and prevention of trafficking and especially activism related to representations of trafficking is a complex process that involves a series of tensions. Binary perspectives lie at the heart of the trafficking experience. Individual and collective, reality and representation, facts and memory, and clinical and cultural. While governmental and institutional responses are critical to prevention and combat of trafficking, so too are humanistic understandings of how traumatic experiences are represented and understood culturally or of how people and communities through film and other cultural forms can transform individual trauma into collective ethical imperative. The representation of violence and abuse implores a more complex analysis and understanding, for it hides latent conflicts between evoking empathy, catharsis, and inciting titillation. As film representation of trafficking has become increasingly important for public awareness and prevention, films simultaneously present risks, for they might even create an opposite effect of perpetuating myths rather than deconstructing them. The films used to raise awareness about trafficking range from short video clips to documentaries and feature films. Most of them actually explore the theme of trafficking for sexual exploitation. Some films sketchy portrayals of the economic and political conditions which drive young women to embrace questionable opportunities for work abroad, for example, can produce disbelief instead of empathy in viewers who question the victim's despair. In other films, viewers can detect the creator's desire for, to satisfy a wish for a happy ending. Such temptations and fantasies can damage the film's credibility. In November 2006, the Bulgarian NGO Animus organized a film festival of trafficking films which were uh, screened free of charge to a well -known, in a well-known Sofia cinema theater. The films include, and I'll just quickly mention the uh, titles, there are many films actually here is a, a, a short list uh, to everybody interested, I can provide more. The films included in that particular festival, Human Trafficking, the TV here, the American Life uh, uh, Time TV drama, Lady Z, a Bulgarian production, Last Resort, a UK production, Lilia Forever, Swedish and uh, Russian production, Promised Land, Israeli film, Maria Full of Grace, and um, Svetlana's Journey, American-Bulgarian co-production. After each show, a questionnaire was distributed to viewers, including two basic questions. Did you learn something new about trafficking in people from this film? What? 
And the second question, do you believe in the story of the film and why? I do not have uh, quantitative analysis of the data at this point and offer only a qualitative in interpretation of the results. 105 responses were received. The overwhelming majority of spectators answered positively the two questions. Interestingly, uh, 25 indicated that they had learned nothing new about trafficking from these films and only three expressed a disbelief in the story. In other words, 74% learned something new and almost all viewers, about 97%, found the films credible. Uh, an immediate conclusion comes to mind, namely that these Bulgarian viewers are much less perceptive and critical than film scholars or critics, not to, to call them gullible. Uh, the information or the content mattered more than the form. There was, however, one notable exception to the overall positive response. All uh, three negative answers to the second question came from this film, Svetlana's Journey. And by the way, also 25% uh, of the viewers of, of that film said they did not learn anything from it, so there could be even some correlation there between the, the disbelief and not learning anything from, from the film. Um, other films actually received better responses. For instance, the other Bulgarian film, uh, Lady Z, had a better uh, scores. 32 people responded as 25 noted that they again did not learn anything new about trafficking, uh, but all 32 believed the story. Uh, all other foreign films actually all of them were credible according to the viewers and about 24% of viewers did not learn anything. Watching all those films critically, one can easily argue that some present better cinematic narratives, acting and camera, camera work than others. Yet the fact that Bulgarian viewers appear to be more perceptive or critical of films that directly reflect their own reality or films in which the context of the trafficking experience is culturally familiar obviously play, play an important role in the way these films deliver their message. Prompted by these results, I screened this film here in a, in a course that I was teaching, Introduction to Bulgarian Culture, and asked the same two questions. All 72 students answered that they learned and the films and were credible. They, they believe in the film. So uh, oh, here I see already a, a slight discrepancy in the way American viewers respond to this film and Bulgarian viewers respond to it. Here, the film also received some Hollywood awards, and I might have them over there here. Uh, the award for best short subject at the Hollywood Film Festival and the best HD short and runner-up for best director at the HD Film Festival, both 2005. So here, obviously, viewers see nothing wrong or flawed with, with this film, whereas Bulgarian viewers were slightly more disturbed. This uh, uh, prompted actually a further work that I have been doing with some colleagues in the Bulgarian Academy of Science, and we have studied attitudes and knowledge about trafficking among Bulgarian and, and um, American um, university students, and although attitudes are similar, there are discrepancies. You could see that uh, Bulgarian, for instance, students think that trafficking results a lot from it is a business matter. Um, 
U.S. students believe that society as a whole uh, is responsible for it, and you will see other other differences as well. This is only to to show you that uh, we need to pay attention to the audience when we screen these films and pay attention to the cultural background um, and national background of the viewers in order really to achieve the best results. With this information in mind, I proceed to more closely analyze Svetlana's uh, journey in an attempt to further explore the importance of the viewer's identification with the themes and images of the film. I turn to recent trauma and cinema theory that at first appears the most appropriate to explore the effectiveness of trafficking films, because in order to really evoke identification and and make these viewers go and do something about trafficking, these films need to really uh, affect the viewers, need to, to be truthful, to move them, to, to attract them emotionally. Without denying the unique nature of trauma, and, and work has been done how traumatic images affect the viewer. I'm interested how the film and their traumatic images mark the viewer. If uh, the creator's good intentions are expected to cause action, the trauma of the trafficking experience should vicariously touch the viewer. A collection of uh, trauma and, and, and cinema, edited by Anne Kaplan and, and Ben uh, Wine, offers four possible positions, viewer positions or spectators' position of trauma images and, and cinema and film. And you have the positions the more politically important one is the fourth one, the position of being a witness, which can open a space for transformation of the viewer through empathic identification, and this is when actually the viewer would eventually go and try to do something about trafficking after that. But as you can see, there are other situations, other, they call them positions, when the viewer can just enjoy the spectacle of a violated body or without really being moved and called to act. Svetlana's uh, journey portrays the violation and sexual abuse of a teenage girl, and actually it is based on a on true story. The director, American actor, writer and director, was accidentally shooting a film, another film in Bulgaria. He heard about trafficking, he heard about this story, wrote a script and created uh, the movie with the help of face-to-face uh, organization in Bulgaria. So I'll go quickly through the story of the film, the way the trauma works, and the culture. The betrayal and the sale of this girl, she was sold um, after the death of her mother, she was sold to pimps. The betrayal and the sale are presented in the first few scenes, and I'll show you a little, and the rest of the cinematic narrative focuses on Svetlana's shock and trauma at the hands of the pimps. The film opens with a sketchy and unclear scene in which Svetlana is taken to a dilapidated dark apartment. There, a young woman delivers her to a dreadful-looking couple who, after a degrading examination of her body and some dissatisfaction with her weight, pay to acquire her. This is the first shocking scene and the first one to suggest the disturbing reality of trafficked women. The rest of the film continues to exploit distressing scenes of Svetlana's abuse, which after 40-odd minutes ends with her suicide. Um, here is the, 
interview with the director on CNN. I would like to, I will not show you the whole interview, but just a clip from, from the film that I think is um, just bear with me here to find the director and the, the whole interview is educational. The reporter asking him, and so what, you did this film and you went there and you told these girls, listen, there is another option, you don't have to do this, and they listen to you. I mean, that this naivete here, even with the CNN report, that all the intentions are great of, of this guy, but just to assume that he went there and screamed it, went several times and he helped so much, nobody else before them, before him did that there, it's a bit uh, presumptuous. Okay, here we go. Stories about um, pimps in, the, in that neighborhood, in those regions, trying to get at them. I will turn down the volume, so I want you to just focus on the images. These are the pimps, and this is so stereotypical. You don't have those pimps today. They are lover boys, they are sleek, they are uh, kind. This is exploiting actually the, the perception of a, some kind of a, I don't know. Um, this image, this scene is really powerful when he is checking her skin and her teeth, and this is before the purchase. Oops. With the golden, golden tooth the guy and golden chain that really they things don't look like that. Okay. Uh, you can easily find that in uh, and here the whole the whole interview. But my point only to show you this is to say that when there are traumatic scenes and they work very powerfully, then there is an abuse and, and blood and torture and screams and this film, these scenes really work powerfully. This is the, the sale was just a suggestion of, of what is to come. Uh, but then there is the other side of the film that I'm going to question. So let me say a few more words about the, the trauma here that the film projects. The close-up that you saw here, the jittery and held hand camera, that evokes identification and asks the viewer to actually start uh, believing uh, Svetlana and assuming her, her point of view. Um, there... There are further scenes, as I said, there is a rape in the, and the film is only 40 minutes uh, long, but the director dwells a lot on these films. There is a scene of about two minute abuse, and that's for a screen time is really a bit too long. So one could question even the effect of this traumatic. There is this constant temptation between, as I said, titillation and actually invoking identification in the viewer and believing in the story. You want to show too much, but would it work if it is too much? Uh, in the role of Svetlana, the, 
actress here, Violeta Markovska, is uh, acting his natural and the camera work convincingly expresses the young girl's pain and trauma. Svetlana's voiceover, writing and reading from her diary, which pushes the film scenes to that of the documentary, have the potential to work as what uh, Hesford calls testimony. Although in the, um, this case, Svetlana's first-person narration does not recount her trauma, but her bewilderment, confusion, and fear. So all this is actually what I'm arguing is and I'm not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The traumatic scenes, although one can even argue about the, the length, I, I believe they are powerful and effective. But when it comes to the cultural presentation of the story, this is where the problems begin. There are other aspects of this film that poke holes in the credibility of the overall presentation. Um, All characters, especially the pimps, uh, are not three-dimensional, but flat and artificial. The dialogue in Bulgarian is unnatural and full of cliches, and I suspect the director wrote it and then they translated it in a kind of sloppy manner. This stereotypical dialogue contributes to the forceful and false acting of uh, the two actors. And last but not least, the narrative leaves the spectator confused about numerous inconsistencies. What is the relationship between the two pimps? Why do they live in such unthinkable conditions? The state of the apartment is really repulsive. If Svetlana makes 400 euros daily, which is said to in the film, um, and, and, and they collect the money, what kind of there is a scene with one of her clients, an electrician, who comes, and if she makes 400, he must pay around 50 euros. First, it's a lot of money for an electrician to pay, and second, to frequent such a locale, that falling apart apartment, falling down apartment. So there are really flaws in the presentation of, of the cultural background of the whole story. Um, even though poverty and unemployment characterize the side of Bulgarian economy, the image of a homeless person warming himself by the fire at the beginning of the film, the decrepit apartment and the dirty and run-down bathroom can certainly distance the spectator, especially Bulgarians, with the sensational insistence on desolation and melancholy. While Svetlana's performance and the traumatic images evoke empathy, these discrepancies create create suspicion and disbelief and negate the credibility of the story. One can argue that by creating an abysmal conditions of the apartment, the filmmakers intended to hint at the film's psychopathic inclinations. This interpretation, interpretation, however, reveals another problem with the representation. The film suggests that psychopaths are involved with trafficking, whereas in reality, ordinary people, lover boys, middle-class corrupted policemen and politicians are often in charge of trafficking operations. The horrific human characteristic that perpetuates trafficking is actually the banality of evil and not psychopathic conditions or extraordinary circumstances. Although the viewer's response to the film and its critical analysis reveal flaws, it has been frequently used in trafficking prevention campaigns in Bulgaria. On March 30, 2006, at an anti-trafficking reception in Sofia, the U.S. ambassador in Bulgaria at that time, uh, John Barney, remarked, the film Svetlana's journey was shown on one uh, cable TV network, 
last December and has become an important weapon in the fight against human trafficking. It reminds me of the way that the American novel Uncle Tom's Cabin became a powerful symbol in the fight against slavery in the United States in the 19th century. It personalizes the tragedy of trafficking and demands justice. I mean, again, all the good intentions are there, but really to compare Svetlana's journey to Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> the uh, discrepancy between the praise of, of the film and uh, viewers' dissatisfaction with it paired with its uh, imperfections that a short analysis brings to light calls for more critical and thoughtful selection of films used in trafficking prevention and awareness campaigns as well as reveals the dicey nature of media involvement with trafficking. The question that arises is who are the viewers envisioned by these directors? And there are many other foreign um, directors who actually engage in projects that attempt to deal to address local problems of trafficking. So here are my conclusions. I insist on the cultural uh, sensitivity of these uh, directors and I believe that trauma will work if the cultural background is accurate, sensitive and respectful of the foreign cultures. If directors work not for the subject, the victims, but with them and present them uh, accurately and sensitively.